Welcome back to another edition of the Pipeline Podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. And uh, guys, right now as we record this, uh, some big news uh, started to come out last night and and into today. Um, Obviously, everyone is anxiously awaiting uh, news as to what's going to happen with this season and, and baseball being a multi-billion dollar industry. There's so many moving parts involved and uh, a lot of details started to come out last night, an agreement between Major League Baseball and the Players Association. Uh, There's a ton involved there, but why don't we focus on the portion of it that uh, affects us directly? Um, Let's talk about how it's going to impact the draft. Yeah, it uh, well, it's going to make the broadcast a lot easier. If uh, if the reports are true, so there's that. Uh, you know, the the latest reports is that it's going to be a, a, a greatly abbreviated draft, as short as five rounds, um, with a lot of the you know bonuses being deferred uh, over the course of a, a few years. Uh, I think bonus pools will be smaller, obviously, if they're only going to do five rounds. A lot of that was still in conversation as we were recording it. The owners were voting on it, um, quite possibly, you know, as we are recording. Uh, but that's the news as of right now. And it sounds like it's going to be part of a sort of a, a longer term desire to shorten the draft anyway. Um, so it would not surprise me at all if the end result is, say, we do five rounds this year. Um, and we can talk about what that means exactly. And then, you know, when things are quote unquote back to normal in 2021, we may see a draft that's only say 20 rounds long. Yeah. And and I think the other issue, it sounds like from the way the reports read is that the union is giving MLB the permission to shorten the draft to as much as five rounds. So it may not be as few as five. That seems to be the thinking right now and that the draft will be held no later than July, so it would probably get pushed back. I don't I don't necessarily understand why the draft would be pushed back. Maybe there'll be some explanation. I don't think that's a, a huge deal, but I don't know why having the draft, say, in July versus June would really make a difference to anyone. It's, it's not like these guys are going to play games. Um, you know, the slots, I think, are going to – Jonathan, from what we've seen, the slots would stay static at the 2019 numbers for a couple of years. Right. I, I think that's fine. I mean, <laughs> if we had a regular draft, that would save teams a couple hundred thousand dollars each, which is like nothing in the grand scheme of a $10.7 billion industry. But like, I don't think that's a huge travesty or anything. The deferral of payments, I think, makes sense. I think that's much better than slashing the slots, in which case then you'd have the top players wondering, well, should I just go back into next year's draft and get higher slots? I think that, I think everybody can live with deferring bonuses. They're kind of like, I don't think the average fan knows that they're, I wouldn't use the word defer, but they're split up. It's not like the day you sign, you know, Casey Mize got $8 million on the day he signed. Teams generally split it into two payments. You get some up front and you get some, you know, at some point the following year. And now that'll be spread over three years or it'll be 10, what, I think 10% this year, Jonathan, and 45% next year, 45% the following year. So that makes sense from a cash flow standpoint. I, to, to me, the biggest issue, the one, I guess I'm going to, I don't know if optimism is the right word. It doesn't sound like it's final that it's five rounds. It sounds like it can be as few as five. 
And I think that's unduly harsh. Yes, yes, we are going to head to a shorter draft. We don't need a 40-round draft. I, I totally agree with that. But you, know, you two guys follow the draft like I do. You know, five rounds you know, with, the, with the comp, couple compensation picks is roughly 160 players who are going to get drafted, and presumably like all of them will sign. Do you guys know how many players signed out of the draft last year counting non-drafted free agents? you have a guess? I'm sure you do. Well, I know. I'm just – do you have a quick guess, either one of you? How many players signed out of out the draft, of the, either through the draft or as non-drafted free agents? Nearly a thousand. Yeah, it was. Yeah, a thousand. It was a thousand sixty. So that would be now again. I don't think you have to sign all those guys, but so we're basically setting up the draft to accommodate nine hundred fewer players. And at the same time, the worst part of this is to, to me is telling non-drafted free agents, "Oh, you can sign. You could sign for twenty thousand dollars." And before they could have signed for $125,000. And we're talking about, you know, if you were a sixth round pick, you could have signed for $300,000. And that may not seem like a ton of money, but you're talking about players who aren't on full scholarship. College players aren't going to necessarily be able to go back. Teams aren't going to have more scholarships to play with. The scholarship limits aren't going to go up. There's going to be less playing time to go around because more players are going to be going to college. And you're telling these players, well, you can go back. And next year you'll be a 22-year-old junior, and those guys usually get treated terribly in the draft. And now they can sign for twenty thousand. You're going to have a bunch of these guys sign for twenty thousand dollars. Each team's going to save like a million bucks on that, which again is a pittance. And guys were using their bonus money to pay back college loans. They're paid. They aren't even paid a living wage as minor leaguers, and they don't get paid anywhere near what they're worth their first few years in the big leagues. I mean, we have a situation where Pete Alonso, it's 53 homers last year, and he's thankful that the Mets are, are deigning to pay him $650,000 next year. And, you know, and I think there is a, there is a general allowance th- that, um, that these are, you know, incredibly extenuating circumstances. And so there, there has to be some special things done I'm not even talking about the draft, just in, in, in general. You know, there is some allowance for that. But it is amazing to me that, in, in, and I, I am with you on this, Jim, that it, it's these sort of smaller pieces that end up being kind of cast aside as part of this larger package without any thought to it. And to me, it's kind of like uh, when people want to trim the national budget and they want to stop funding uh, public television. And that's like 0.0001% of the budget. Like what, what real impact is that actually having? And in, the, you know, and, in the, and in this case, it is, I think you're right, it is impacting lives. Um, you know, there is a lot of concern about minor leaguers who don't make any money, um, you know, outside of the guys who made the really large bonuses uh, out of the draft or, or out of you know, signing as an international player, they're, they're not making that much money. So uh, the, the salaries that they were counting on are, are really important, especially because it's not like they can go out and find a job right now. So I think that's important. And then I think, you know, the, the shortening of the draft, and I, and I do agree with you, we don't need 40 rounds of the draft. Uh, you know, the, the last few rounds in particular end up being kind of vanity, vanity picks and things of that nature. Um, the one thing that I am concerned about is that a shortening of the draft is, is sort of, works uh, part and parcel with the desire to uh, truncate minor leagues, you know, getting rid of teams, getting rid of leagues. 
um, and you know what impact that could have on players uh, and also on you know local economies where you know some of these small towns do rely on a certain amount uh, of of revenue from these minor league teams, which would no longer exist uh, if, if if sort of things continue along uh, along that path. Yeah, I was going to say, Jonathan. I mean, I, I I do agree. I mean, you know, much has been made of the of the you know major league versus minor league you know contentious negotiations, and I would think that the major leagues are going to be even more resolute about wanting to you know maybe trim what they consider fat and and cut back you know given the economic client climate of what the season's going to be like. And like I said, I mean. I think with the draft, I understand you're making these changes. I liked your public television analogy. You know, like I said, this is going to save these changes are going to save teams a couple million dollars per team, which is a drop in the bucket. You know, it's like 1% of, of the revenue that they're going to lose. But I don't, I guess I don't understand this whole $20,000 limit. What really bothers me about that is if you're an owner and you don't want to sign a non-drafted free agent for $125,000, fine, don't do it. Um, but I think you would have had a number of teams do this. A lot of players use that money to live off when they're in the minor leagues because they're getting paid next to nothing. And even when the changes are going to be made, it's still not a living wage. It's still not a full-time year-round wage. They need even, you know, there's, there, there were probably, and I, I didn't count it up, three or 400 players who got six-figure bonuses, you know, $125,000, $150,000 last year. Um, and they use that money then going forward in their careers to try to get to the big leagues. And that's going to be gone. I, I think you could have just left that at 125. And if, you know, owner of a random team says, ah, I don't want to do that. He doesn't have to, but instead, you know, you're going to have players who, who are going to sign because the opportunity is going to be better this year rather than next year where the draft's going to be flooded. And like you said, there might be fewer teams, but uh, you know, so we'll see. I, I guess I'm going to remain hopeful that, that the reports, like we said, are the draft can be as few as five rounds, but maybe it will be more than five. We'll, we'll have to see. I, I'm just glad. I am glad, though. I will say I am glad. Like the idea of canceling a draft, which got floated, I think, a week ago, um, would have caused so many problems for so many people at so many levels. Um, and I love the draft. And I know you guys love the draft. So I'm glad we are at least having a draft. Um, you know, we'll, we'll find out how many rounds and when, hopefully some point soon. Yeah, we should. It sounds like we should be learning more details uh, as early as today. And obviously we'll have those uh, on the site um, as they are, uh, as they come to light over the next day or so. Um, so part of, part of what we're waiting to find out is when the season will begin, how long it will be. Um, there, the reports out there that both sides uh, want as many games to be played as possible all these players are obviously in limbo right now. Uh, Jim and Jonathan, I know you guys have been in contact uh, with some players uh, recently. How are they holding up? What are they doing? Um, Jim, I know one player you talked to uh, has built a, a, a homemade pitching pitcher's mound in his backyard and is uh, throwing to a, a local uh, high school player there uh, among what, what you've heard from several, several other players. Um, what are these guys doing? Yeah, you know, it's, you know, it's Jonathan. Um, <laughs> Jonathan got to do his Arizona trip um, and, and emerged healthy from that. So that was good. I didn't get to go to Arizona. So I've been spending this week kind of catching up on my, my spring training reports um, from, from Arizona. 
over the phone. And, and so I talked to um, Sam Huff with the Rangers. We haven't run that Q&A yet. And I talked to Logan Gilbert with the Mariners and, and Cody Hosey with the Dodgers. And, um, you know, it was interesting. I mean, all those guys, I think um, they, they, they thanked me for calling them. I think, I think everybody is kind of like looking for things to do. And it was, it was fun for them to talk baseball for 15 minutes or so. And I, and that was one of the things we talked about is, you know, what are you guys doing? You know, spring training ended abruptly. We don't know when we're resuming, you know, for the, for the position players, it's a little bit easier, you know, especially for Sam Huff, I guess, has a, a batting cage he's had in his backyard, I, I think for a while and a pitching machine. So he goes out there and hits and he also takes ground balls and practices his blocking skills with the pitching machine. So Sam Huff sounded like the three guys I talked to, he was in the best shape. I mean, he's got weights and, you know, and, and stuff to work with. He sounded pretty good. Um, Cody Hosey, you know, also a position player in the Dodgers system. He's got some weights in his basement, not a ton of equipment, but he said enough to keep him busy. And I guess there's a facility around the corner from his house that he said he can go hit in. Um, you know, I, you practice social distancing and all that, but he can go hit and it's not hard to get to that type of thing. You know, Logan Gilbert is in kind of the toughest boat. You know, we talked and I don't think I, I, would have had like a 20 minute Q and a, if I transcribed the whole thing, you know, with pitchers, it's, it's, it's tough because you kind of have to build your arm up gradually. You know, everybody's building up, you know, expecting the season, you know, it would have started March 26th in the big leagues and a couple of weeks later in the minor leagues. So you're building up to that. And then spring training stopped and you don't know, you know, you're trying to kind of keep the motor running, but you're not sure, you know, how fast. Cause you don't know, like, like, we don't know, like I, I would guess we're not coming back before June 1st. You know, maybe there's spring training in May, um, might be July. We just don't know. And, and that would affect, you know, if, if Logan Gilbert's going to be throwing in spring training at some point in May, he would approach things differently than if he's coming back in June or July. And so there's a lot of unknowns with pitchers. I, I've talked to this with farm directors too, and, and nobody knows the answer as to what exactly you should do. Cause if, if you do too much now and then you have to back guys up and ramp them up again, that's not great. You know, plus the whole issue of how many innings you're going to get guys during the season. But, but yeah, Logan said uh, he, he was a little bit more makeshift than the other guys. He's got some weights on his porch and he's, he's got a homemade mound in his backyard. And, and there's a, a, college, a high school catcher, jo- I think it was Josh from Oviedo high who lives in the neighborhood who's catching him. Cause I, uh, I told Logan, he told me about the homemade mound. I had this great concern. I mean, Logan Gilbert has just got like un- ridiculous extensions, so his fastball seems even faster than it is. And I, I had this, I was trying to envision like Logan's dad or mom trying to catch him in the backyard. That wouldn't, I, I don't even like to catch my my twenty four year old son um, who doesn't throw ninety two ninety seven with with unbelievable extension. But he assured me he had the high school catcher in the neighborhood who who did a pretty good job when they did their first bullpen. But I, I can't imagine what what guys are trying, especially a pitcher. Trying, you know, like you just have no idea if what you're doing is the best thing or not right now. Yeah, I, 97 with like crazy sink and life, and no, no, thank you. Um, you know, maybe if Dad puts on like like a full suit of armor, you know, that would you're better off just putting like a cardboard cutout up and let him let him pitch to that. Uh, listen, I, you know, I I had the same thing at a much smaller level with with you know my son Zeev, who was supposed to have his his freshman year at Point Park University. And never, never got anywhere. It was hard enough to find ways to throw bullpens, you know, in Pittsburgh because of the weather. Um, and now it's just, you know, it's a little bit nicer, but it's, you can't really do it. He's not going to pitch this year. So like, I don't even know how much time on the mound he should be spending. Um, the one positive he had given up hitting, but he's going to start hitting again. Cause it's easier to go find a place to hit. 
And he already talked to the coach in the fall. He was going to play first base and hit. That's just an aside. So I, I think people are going to have to continue to be creative. Um, next week, I am going to uh, I am going to be talking to Royce Lewis, the Twins' top prospect. Uh, we're going to be doing a little uh, FaceTime video feature kind of thing. So we'll see how that goes. So I got to talk to Royce, who is at his home in Texas, uh, about the kinds of things that he's he's doing as well. And it looks like that the major league owners, we said that we thought that they were perhaps uh, talking about this as we were recording. And it does look like the owners unanimously ratified this deal with the Players Association. We'll have to wait to find out um, what the details are as it pertains to to the draft. All right. So, Jonathan, you said uh, you're going to be talking to Royce Lewis uh, on, on Monday. Uh, one of the really great talkers in, in all of minor league baseball, one of the, probably one of the all-time great prospect talkers that you guys have encountered, um, which uh, now something that each of you was asked over the past couple of weeks um, in an inbox, uh, not about all-time great talkers, but simply the, put together your all-time prospect teams. Um, Jonathan, you answered that question last week in an inbox. Jim answered it this week in an inbox. And I thought it was kind of interesting that, uh, you know, your careers as prospect reporters have largely overlapped. Um, Jim's going back a little further, but he's a lot uh, older than I am. Exactly. Uh, But in, in looking at your list, there are actually only three players that you have in common on, on uh, each of your lists being uh, Trout, Harper and Strasburg. Yeah, I would have thought that we would have had maybe a couple more. Um, we did kind of think approach it from two entirely different viewpoints. And I think because you took the MLB.com ranking era, and I went back to when I began, I had 16 more years in play than you. So my, my span, I think, was twice what yours was. And you approached it from who had the most successful careers for the most part. And I approached it to who were the best prospects on their way to the big leagues. So I think that's why we had less overlap. Yeah, Jim, your uh, your team has some players that uh, would predate the MLB.com era in terms of uh, how long uh, we've been ranking prospects on the site. Um, old John Olerud as your first baseman, um, A-Rod as your shortstop, um, and then your pitching staff. Um, yeah, Griffey as one of your outfielders. Your pitching staff um, is interesting in, in that they are uh, certainly some very big names, and but a, a couple of guys that didn't quite pan out uh, or live up to their very lofty expectations. Yeah, I mean, well, uh, most most notable by Ryan Taylor. I was going to say, you know, I did I did mention in the inbox. I mean, I, I basically went with the three guys who were considered the best college pitcher in the draft ever during my career, and that was Ben McDonald and Mark Pryor and Steven Strasburg, and and I noted. McDonald and, and Mark Pryor actually had better career. I mean, they, they didn't last. They got hurt, but they actually had better careers, I think, than people realize. Um, you know, Mark Pryor was really good for basically three full seasons over a period of four years, and then he was done. And Ben McDonald, I think, won 75 games and actually, you know, had some success. But, you know, and then the, the, the pitcher, high school pitchers were, I still think Josh Beckett, if you talking to scouts in the three years I've been covering it, it would tell you Josh Beckett's the best high school pitcher they've seen. 
And a lot of them would tell you that, that Brian Taylor, who's the only guy on my list and never even made it to the big leagues, is the best left-handed pitcher they ever saw. And, you know, again, I mean, I think a lot of fans probably don't even like Brian Taylor, who's that? And, I mean, this was a guy who was the number one overall pick in 1991. You know, radar guns were not as – I don't think so much that they're souped up as precise as they are today. But, I mean, he was up to 98 miles an hour when very few guys were up to 98. I mean, that would probably be like 102 today. He had a, a power-breaking ball that would probably be in the mid-80s today with the same radar guns we're using now. Um, and he was so athletic, and it was just ridiculous stuff. Um, you know, he, I remember I, I wrote in the inbox, you know, he signed for $1.55 million in 1991, in part because the Yankees did not want, like back then you could give guys big league contracts. And so that it kind of started to blow up with McDonald and Olrude in 1989 and then Ty Van Poppel in 1990. And Brian Taylor wanted a big league contract and the Yankees didn't want to give it to him because the expansion draft was coming up and they would have to use one of their protected spots on Brian Taylor if he had a big league contract and he was on the 40-man roster. So they gave him $1.55 million. And I still remember being downstairs in the offices at Baseball America when we got that news. You know, Again, there's no internet. It, nobody tweeted it out. I think we got a phone call from somebody uh, with the Yankees or, or maybe it was with the Boris Corp. And that was almost three times the previous record. And that was just shocking, this shocking bonus at the time that he got $1.55 million. And you know, he got into double A, you know, after two years in the Yankee system, you know, continued to look great. One of the best prospects in baseball. And he got in an off season fight, you know, his brother was involved in, he wrecked his shoulder and he was basically done. So you, you know, Brian Taylor, you know, will never, you know, never pitched in the big leagues. And, uh, but yet if you talk to scouts who've been scouting back to the nineties and ask them, who's the best left-handed pitching prospect you've ever seen. I, I think the old time scouts will tell you, most of them will tell you it was Brian Taylor. It was interesting. And, and I remember when we were talking about this, when I was doing it for the inbox, when we were sort of discussing how you could have different philosophies and how, how you would do this. Obviously, some of the guys that you had, <clears throat> I would have included, you know, A-Rod and Griffey would have made my team. Um, Andrew Jones probably also, or at least would have been in, in the conversation. Um, yeah, I kind of did more looking at guys, where they were ranked, they went on to perform, you know, that did include, you know, guys who are still not even in the middle of it, like uh, Ronald Acuna, who, you know, wasn't necessarily a huge prospect when he signed, he didn't sign for that much money, but became one pretty quickly in the minors and has you know, more than lived up to it. Um, and uh, I think he was the only other guy that I put on there. Vlad Jr. is an interesting one because you put him as, uh, as your third baseman. And I, it that was close for me. Um, I mean, I, you know, I cheated a little bit. I put Manny Machado at 30, even though he was drafted as a shortstop and, you know, spent a lot of time as a, as a shortstop uh, initially. But um, that was one where I was like, not quite, you know, but in terms of hype. Yeah. I to I totally, I, I, I totally get that or, and, or it makes sense. I was a little surprised that you didn't include Verlander. I'm not sure who I would have taken out off of your off of your, especially the way you went after. I guess you couldn't take McDonald off because you were talking about in terms of like the thought of the biggest college pitching prospect. But maybe that would have been the only one that I would be like, huh? That maybe I would have said Verlander belonged on in, in your rotation. Yeah, you I, just, out of your I ran out of room. Like I said, I mean, I, you know, eliminate the five. You know me. I could go deep and and have eight pitchers on there. Like because the other guy I actually thought about was Todd Van Poppel. 
And I think Van Poppel, well, I mean, Van Poppel was a really good prospect. And I think getting rushed because he had a big league contract damaged his career. Um, but if you go back and look at how Van Poppel performed in the minor leagues, he was walking a ton of guys too. He wasn't as good a prospect as Beckner Taylor. I mean, like literally all five guys on my staff with the way I was doing it were considered either the best high school pitcher of all time or the best college pitcher of all time when I was covering him. So that's kind of what I did. I mean, if you're doing it from a perspective of who had the best career, you know, yeah, Verlander would have made it, you know, Guerrero, you know, again, he's just gotten started. You know, I didn't have, um, you know, in case somebody was wondering about Pujols and Pujols was almost too quick. You know, Pujols was a 13th round pick. You know, it's funny. I mean, he did kind of come out of nowhere, but I do remember being a baseball America and Alan Simpson actually had Albert Pujols on his top 100 high school prospects for his draft year. Um, I think even right down at the bottom of the list, you know, he had his name, which I, which was always interesting when people talk about nobody knew who this guy was. I mean, obviously Alan had gotten his name from somebody and then he, he, instead of going to his senior year of high school, he, he went to junior college and he was a 13th round pick and he went to the Jayhawk league and got a modest bonus. But Pujols only spent one full season in the minor leagues and people were still trying to figure out, okay, you know, exactly, you know, how good is this guy? Where'd he come from? And then bam, he was in the big league. So that, that's why a guy like Pujols didn't make my list is he was just, you know, he was just too quick. You know, Miguel Cabrera was a guy I considered, um, you know, Vlad, you know, they kind of were on the same career path. Vlad had better numbers at the same stages. So I, that's why I went with Vlad over him. But, you know, it was it was interesting kind of putting this together. I, you know, I, I wrote in my inbox, Jonathan, I thought Alex Rodriguez is the best prospect I've ever covered. I think he'll be the best I, I, I'll ever cover. I mean, I just don't think we'll see a, a five-tool shortstop who gets to the big leagues as an 18-year-old. Um, I mean, who would be, you know, even not necessarily, you know, limited to the guys in MLB.com era if you want to go a little bit earlier. But, I mean, who do you think is the best prospect you've covered in your career? Yeah, well, so, I mean, if you do go back a little bit, because I, I remember my, my first year at MLB.com was uh, – this is getting a little meta um, – but uh, was 99, and I remember – I uh, came from the New York Post, and I knew nothing about the draft. And I started in April '99, and already at that point in time, the draft was big online because all it was was the conference call. But we set traffic records. This was pre-expansion of MLB.com and advanced media and all that, and uh, it was a big deal. So we did a lot of a lot of coverage even back then. So I mean, I can go back a little bit further. Um, you know. Bryce Harper is probably the guy that back-to-back years of Harper and Strasburg, I think, are you know the ones where it was one after another these sort of really really hyped uh, draft prospects um, with huge expectations. Harper had been on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was you know two years old or whatever it was. I'm exaggerating, um, but you know combination of when they came out, the draft was growing in popularity. It was on TV at that point. I think those are probably the two guys um, who jump out the most. Um, you know, I do remember uh, Mark Pryor, him coming out and everyone talking about him. Um, you know, we, again, we were doing a good amount. 01 was like our first full year with the expanded sites and everything. And I remember everyone talking about him and, you know, how his 
delivery and his stuff and the, the, the combination. He seemed like the, the perfect college pitching prospect. And obviously we saw how that turned out. It's not like he didn't have a career, but ended up breaking down. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I probably would look at that Harper Strasburg back to back, you know, number one pick at those guys uh, would be the guys I would probably circle. Yeah. Those uh, both of those guys had such immense expectations right off the bat. And, uh, you know, especially for a uh, high school position player in Harper, um, that that's, uh, kind of stands out as being unusual. Um, another guy who seems to have those type of lofty expectations, um, who is uh, on your list, Jim, is Adley Rutschman. And I want to talk about him because you guys also um, recently put together – uh, list of the uh, most highly regarded or most hyped catching prospects of the past 20 years. Um, so all of our beat reporters uh, over the past week ranked the top five um, top five ca- catchers of all time in their organizations. And we kind of tagged along and uh, looked at the most hyped catching prospect for each team. Um, and Rutschman uh, certainly uh, has that sort of hype right now. Yeah, he does. I mean, I, you know, kind of tying the two together, you know, it was interesting when we did this list, there were like, it's been interesting looking at the beat reporters doing their lists and picking the best catcher in the top five guys. And even though obviously some of those teams, if you're the Cubs go back 140 years, you know, our lists only go back 20, but there were actually four guys on both lists, on, on our list and on the team list, who were the club, club's best patching, catching prospect, can't speak all of a sudden, over the last two decades, and the best backstop in the team's history all time. And that was Jonathan LaCroix with the Brewers, Joe Maurer with the Twins, Buster Posey with the Giants, and JT Real Muto with the Marlins. And, and you know, in the introduction, we speculate Ali Rutschman, I would think is a pretty good chance to surpass Rick Dempsey as the Orioles' best catcher ever. Um but yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I do think in the in the, in the era, the MLB.com era, you know, Rutschman and Posey and Maller are, are the three best catching prospects that have come out, and they've all made it. But like, what I always love about doing these these, these prospect, you know, retrospectives is just seeing the names. Like, there's guys you haven't thought about in a while, you you, you kind of forgot about. I think 26 of our guys are either in the big leagues or their careers are over there. There's a few guys like Rutschman who are, who are still prospects, but yeah, you, you, you see Joe Maurer and Buster Posey and you also see Jesus Montero who, you know, was, I mean, when I was a baseball, I think he, he was coming up when I was still at baseball America, Jonathan, but I mean, I know you covered him too. Uh, you know, this was a guy who guys were like, Oh, you know, he's probably not going to be a catcher, but there's no way this guy won't hit and won't hit for a ton of power. And, and really the, 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 the best thing Jesus Montero has done, is I think he holds the record or at least tied the record for most AAA All-Star Game appearances. You and I both broadcast the game and I always see his name in, in that record book when they hand us the big packet every year. You know, and, and he had the infamous ice cream incident where a, a scout told him to go eat another ice cream or go, go get fatter or something, bought him an ice cream sandwich. Um, like that's what Jesus Montero is re- remembered for. And at one point, I mean, guys thought he was about as good an offensive prospect as there was in the minors. And, and then one that, I still think this guy's career could have been a lot different. I loved Blake Swihart as a prospect. He was part of an unbelievable 2011 draft, the Red Sox that, you know, 
Mookie Betts and Jackie Bradley Jr. and Matt Barnes and and some other guys too. And and I'm this guy had the tools of a young Buster Posey, but he got hurt. Never really got an opportunity. He did get a World Series ring, but you know people aren't going to look back at, at Blake Swihart as a big success story. But man. I mean, he was one of the best prospects of baseball at one time. So it's I love looking at these lists for that kind of mix of, oh, here's guy, you know, Joe Mauer and Buster Posey might be a Hall of Famer, and here's guys who didn't get anywhere close to. Right, right. Yeah, it's funny. I, I was literally typing to Jim, like, are you going to tell the, the ice cream sandwich story? And, and I didn't even finish typing it, and he started telling the ice cream sandwich story. So um, my, the thing I keep remembering about Jesus Montero was when he was in the Futures game. And I was interviewing him and I accidentally called him Miguel like three times. Oh, no. Um, and, and he was very, very gracious about it. So, um, uh, so I always appreciated that. But yes, he never, he never quite became, you know, obviously you know, the, the guy. That's a dubious honor, by the way. AAA All Star game record. It was at least um, four appearances. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think it's part of the reason why, and I don't know if this happened to you. But uh, when Gary Sanchez was coming along and was getting so hyped, um, I, I paused because I keep I, I think I had Montero stuck in the back of my head, offensive minded Yankee prospect catcher. Um, and Sanchez had his share of difficulties, too. So I was always a little like a little cautious on Sanchez. Now, he has established himself as a legitimate big league hitter, um, you know, but uh, I think that's. Part of the reason why I was always uh, – I was never down on Gary Sanchez, but I always was like, mm, he needs to prove it to me. But it, it, there, it, it is an interesting mix. You know, my 10 teams on this one, I had a lot of high school catchers, you know, got, uh, who, and that's tough. You know, for every Joe Maurer, there's a Jeff Mathis, you know. He's had a decent career, just kind of – Yeah, as a backup, right? 15 years, I mean, on and off as, as a backup. Um it's interesting to look, you know, sort of an interesting guy to me is Jorge Alfaro, who could have been on more than one list, I guess, right? Like, he was your choice for the Rangers. I could have made him the, the Phillies guy, um, and I thought about it. Lou Marson was ranked a little higher um, back in 2009. Um, I feel much better about the process and how we rank prospects now than back than when I did it back then taking nothing away from Lou Marson by the way uh but um you know another by the way Lou Marson another high school catcher um so who made it to the big leagues and played a decent amount and now is a minor league manager um you know but another guy who didn't quite live up to to expectations yeah, I was going to say, you know, it's, it's, speaking of high school catchers, it's interesting because this came up when we were doing our draft stuff this year. You know, Tyler Soderstrom and Drew Romo, we both have is where we have them ranked on the list would put them in the first round. And, you know, there's you, know, you always hear scouts a lot of times will talk about, you know, high school catchers in the first round are risky. And and, and I, I'm, I'm a big proponent of, yeah, you have to be aware of risk. But also, if you think a guy – I would not avoid a guy purely because of demographics if I thought he was talented. But – and so I was like – when I had this conversation with a couple of people, I think more in regards to Drew Romo because I have Texas, you have California with Soderstrom. I uh, was like, I'm going to go back and look. I want to look and see high school first-round catchers. And it was scary. I think the last high school first-round catcher who had – I can't remember if it was five war or ten war. 
it might have even just been five war and stated catcher <laughs> was Joe Mauer. And, and, and that's 2001 and Joe Mauer went one, one. So that's like not a good, <laughs> that, that, that's not even fair because like, you're not going to be able to pick one, one. And so before Joe Mauer, if you're looking at a guy who stated catcher and had a, a, a career of some significance, it was Jason Kendall. And that was 1992. So I was like, okay, that, that first round high school catcher demographic yeah, that scares me a little bit more than it did before I started looking at that. Yeah. There are a lot more Kyle Skipworths than there are Joe Mowers. Well, yes. the one catcher uh, on our list that I highlighted that I thought could potentially uh, overtake the player who was uh, ranked as his organization's best catcher of all time. Uh, in, Jonathan, you, you mentioned conflating the catching Monteros. Uh, Miguel Montero is the uh, catcher – uh, on the D-backs list and and on our list, uh, we have Dalton Varsho, which obviously um, very early on for him. Um, and of course, questions about whether he'll end up catching, but that seemed like one team where the player on our list could potentially overtake the player that is currently considered the best of an organization's all time. Yeah, I could see that. I also could see them, you know, moving Varsho to third or the outfield, or you know, um, he runs so well and he's Carson fun. Kelly's so good behind the plate too. That's the problem. Yeah, um, yeah. So, but that, that, that's a, I think in a in a vacuum, you're right. And Varsho stays behind the plate. Um, yeah, I could see that. I'm a big Varsho fan. I mean, I like guys like Heber Ruiz and Sean Murphy. But we've we've got Hall of Famers for those teams. You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that Sean Murphy is gonna be better than Mickey Cochran or or KB Ruiz is gonna be better than Roy Campanella or even Mike Piazza. I mean, Dodgers have some pretty good catchers. So yeah, I mean, it, it's it's interesting too looking at the at the big league list that the that all the beat writers did. I mean, you get some Hall of Famers, and then uh, I'm not trying to bang on anybody, but like I would not have come up with the fact that your Vitor Alba was the best catcher in Rockies history. You know, it's there's there's Johnny Bench and then there's your Vitor Alba. So it, it it's an interesting it's an interesting mix of players on there as well. All right, guys. Um, one more thing I want to talk about here uh, before we uh, adjourn and go dig into the details of this uh, this agreement uh, that's out there. Um, we obviously put our top 100 prospects list out in January. Uh, several other publications uh, in the industry put out their top 100s, top 101, top 125, I think some are. But uh, we took a look uh, at those lists and compared them. And, uh, you know, people do this all the time when, we, when our list comes out and the various other lists come out. People compare them. We see tweets uh, showing where different players rank on each list. We threw everybody, uh, we threw everybody's list into a spreadsheet and uh, some pretty interesting takeaways. Um, for one, there's, there is, and I think naturally and obviously a, a lot of consensus. There's a general consensus. 65 players in total uh, were on all six uh, within the top 100 of all six lists. And then there were 14 additional prospects who were on five of the six lists and then a dozen more who were on four of the six. So, you know, you, and this is, this is, you know, pretty obvious. Uh, you guys are talking to a lot of the same people. You're getting input from a lot of the same people. So I think that makes sense, right? Yeah, I, I think, I think so. It's, uh, 
there, there's not that much unknown now. It's not like we're uncovering players that aren't known quantities at this point. Um, you know, if I had guessed what the uh, the over under would have been, would I have you know set it at sixty five? I, I don't know. Maybe I would have guessed a little bit less, especially because you know different people have have different ways of approaching the list, and maybe they're you know going to be a little more you know some may be a little more aggressive. Uh, taking you know younger high risk high reward guys and putting them on the list on their top 100s. Um, so 65 is actually a little tiny bit higher um, than I would have thought. And then you know that's just all six lists. We, we use six lists here. Um, it was the Athletic, Baseball America, Baseball Prospectus, ESPN, and Fangraphs. And then there are in addition to the 65, there are 14 players who are on five of the six and 12 more on four of the six. So um, that's like, that's a lot of continuity I think, overall. Yeah, you know, I was going to say, I mean, Jonathan, you and I talk about all the time too about this continuity, about the continuity. I mean, where people would, fa- I mean, fans will cherry pick. Like, typically, they'll like the list that has their favorite prospect or prospects ranked the highest, and other, you know, they'll dislike the list that has them ranked the lowest. But like I tell people all the time, and it's just not. Obvious. If we were doing a list, let's say we went to 150, and we we do we don't officially finalize the rankings, but we usually vote for 125 or 150 prospects as our starting pro- process. If you were to take the guys who ranked from 76 to 125, if we went that deep, th- th- there's very little difference between those guys. I might have a guy I'm adamant. Oh, I love this guy. I hate that guy. You might be the vice versa. But in all honesty, the guy who ranks 76 and the guy who ranks at 119, it's just a matter of taste as to which guy you prefer. But the difference is, is guys 76 to 100 show up on the top 100 list. Guys 101 to 125, it's like they don't exist. And people get, oh, how could you leave this guy off? Well, he might have been number 103 on our list, but he's just not on the list because it stops at 100. Yeah, no, I think that that's worth pointing out. And listen, there's, you know, like we all have different methodologies. And, you know, for us, there's three of us that put together our top 100. It's not like it's just Jim's opinion or just mine, or just Mike Rosenbaum's, you know, so um, we get a lot of feedback from uh, around the, the, the scouting industry, um, you know, and then there are some people who do their list based on what they what they see and how they evaluate the players. So uh, there are different ways to approach it, even if there is a, a lot of, uh, if, you know, if there are a lot of similarities uh, with a lot of the names. I did think it was interesting, um, uh, what, so if you look at the story, we have a few different sections. Uh, we have a section uh, on guys that we're high on where we have players ranked higher, uh, considerably higher than the average of the other list. Um, that list is kind of interesting because you have a couple of uh, very high draft pick uh, high school shortstops in Bobby Witt Jr. and Royce Lewis. And then after that, it's uh, a bunch of college players, uh, also a lot of high uh, first round picks. I think I think seven of the 10 guys on this list uh, were taken within the first eight overall picks in the draft. Um, and then also there were three players that didn't appear in any other of the other five top 100 prospect lists that we do have ranked all low in our top 100, but Bryson Stott at number 87, Seth Corey at number 99, and George Kirby at number 100. Corey's the one that surprises me a little bit, Jonathan. I, I mean, the draft guys, people, like you said, take different approaches to where they put guys fresh out of the draft. But 
to me, uh, I don't, I'm not saying Seth Corey is like, we had him at 99. And, and so it wasn't like, like we're saying, oh, this guy's a slam dunk top 100 guy. I, I'm surprised we're the only outlet that's ranked him. And I've seen some, like, if you look at other teams top, you know, the, their team lists where they don't have, you know, Seth Corey's like well down their Giants list. I don't understand that because, I mean, you're talking about an athletic lefty with three solid or better pitches who was the best pitcher in low class A in the second half of the season once he his delivery started to click, cut his walk rate significantly. Like, I'm just surprised that nobody else would mention him and, I, and, and like, have him lower on Giants list. I feel like he's the one guy who – I won't, you know, maybe I, like I, we don't know who's right, but I, I, I feel like we're more in the right on Seth Corey than other people are for not ranking him. Yeah, um, I, I have fresh in my mind uh, having talked to Seth Corey uh, and uh, in spring training, as you mentioned uh, much earlier in the podcast. I actually did my Arizona trip. He's so thoughtful uh, about what he's been doing to be. Come a more complete pitcher. I have much more faith. You know, you, it, you, obviously there's there's familiarity bias, right? So you get to know a player, um, and you, you, I think it's human to like one root for him more. But two, I'm just like, wow, he actually knows what he's doing and and how to try to get there. Now, whether he gets there, we'll have to see. But it made me feel much more comfortable having him on the list because he was like a, he's on the list. He's off the list. He's on the list. He's off the list when we were putting it together. So, um, yeah, so yes, I, I'm, I'm with you on that one. I'm a little surprised given his stuff and the step forward he took last year that we were the only list to rank him in the top 100. And like you said, you know, we, we have him at number 99. It's, it's not like Jim, like you said, it's not like we're saying he's a slam dunk. Um, there are some more polarizing players, though, and that's one of the sections we have in the story that I think is maybe the most interesting section is uh, our list of the most polarizing players, and that's based on the, the range of different ranks that the players got across the, the six different lists that we looked at. Um, at the top of that list is uh, Alex Kirilov, who ranks as high as number nine on one list and as low as number 86 on another, uh, and then I think the name that I saw bandied about the most uh, on Twitter was Nick Madrigal, who uh, ranks as high as number 13 on one list. And then he was unranked on one of the lists. Um, Outside of that, he was, he was pretty similarly ranked and and he was ranked in the forties on four different lists, but one list having him at 13 and another, not even having him in the top 100 is uh, obviously a a big disparity. I don't see how you don't rank him. I mean, we've talked about, and me in particular, I think he's. I still have a hard time figuring out exactly what Nick Madrigal is going to be at the big league level, because it's such an extreme hit over power approach. But I mean, he's the best contact hitter in the minors. He struck out three percent of his at bats last year. It goes back to being Oregon State. But even if he doesn't hit for a lot of power, he's going to hit for high average. He's going to play, perhaps. You know, I think he's got the potential to win Gold Gloves at second base. Was he the second baseman on your All Defense team, Jonathan, when you did that story in January? I have no institutional memory, but he I think he was. I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. And he's, he's, really, really, he's yeah. really good there. Yeah, and he's a plus runner. So I, I think we can argue that his ceiling might not be as high. Like, I, like, thir- like, I think we had him at forty, or I know we had him in the forties. I know one of those rankings in the forties is ours. Um, like, but his his floor is one of the highest floors on this list. 
And, you know, I mean, the ceiling, I mean, this guy could be a batting champ. I, I, so, well, I could see where, like, the 13 surprises me, but they're not ranking him among the hot, top 100 prospects in baseball. I think at worst, this guy's going to be a long-term everyday player who at worst hits 275 and, you know, contends for gold gloves at an up-the-middle position. It's a pretty good player. Yeah, and it's, you know, listen, it's, it's, it's one, one list didn't list him. And everyone else had him in the top 50. So you want to argue within the top 50, that's fine. And there's a huge difference between 13 and 48. That's the range. Um, but uh, that, that was the one that I thought was, you know, it's pretty interesting. And I think, you know, Jim, you remember we even around the draft when we were talking informally, you know, before the draft, people didn't know what to make of him exactly. He's... Uh, He's different, and so we'll have to see what he becomes in the big leagues. I'm a I'm a believer, uh, so I, yeah, I, I was fine with where we we had him. Um, I wouldn't have had him as high as 13, but uh, that's what makes all this interesting. All right, we won't we won't dig into uh, all of these names, but uh, just to rattle off uh, a few more of the names that were listed here as the most polarizing players: Joey Bart who had a high rank of seven, was ranked as low as 44. Daniel Lynch, a high mark of 13, as low as 93. And then Carter Keboom with a high rank of 11 and a low of 74. Uh, all these guys, as well as the least polarizing players, uh, which is led by uh, the unanimous number one, Wander Franco. Uh, all of that and more is uh, on MLBpipeline.com. You can check that out. Uh, Thanks to everybody for joining us for another Pipeline podcast, and we will talk to you all next week.